All right, our text today is about things that are lost and found again. Like many of Jesus' parables, this is totally relatable. We have all lost things. Sometimes we find them, and sometimes lost things stay lost. Elizabeth Bishop, who is one of my favorite poets, writes in her poem, One Art, the art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost, that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day. Accept the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Many of us actually master this skill without putting any effort at all into it. <laughs> we lose things and search for them with alarming regularity. Some of us, those who may be slightly more scatterbrained, lose things more often than others. We are fortunate we find those things again. My mom, who's here this morning, <laughs> my mom once lost an earring and found it years later while power washing the driveway. <laughs> I remember panic setting in as I misplaced an entire bag of unmarked grade 12 essays. Yeah. <laughs> panic. And the next day, I found them safely where I'd left them in my colleague's classroom. Maybe you've lost something even more alarming, a passport, a family member in the grocery store. I'd like to give you a moment to consider things that you have lost and then found again, and then in a concise story, share them with the person that you are sitting next to. What did you lose and find, and how did you feel when you found it? Go for it. As a teacher, I'm always very hesitant to cut off good conversation. Um, but hopefully, the buzz of conversation means that this is an experience that we can all really relate to. I want, to have that, I want you to have that sort of joy of finding in the back of your mind as we move through the rest of our conversation this morning. Jesus has a very particular reason for telling these lost and found stories. So it's important to begin by looking at the context. Jesus has been teaching, traveling, healing, and dining. Uh, in the previous chapter, he has dined with a prominent Pharisee, healed a man with leprosy on the Sabbath, and spoke to large crowds, the large crowds that followed him about the cost of discipleship. And at the beginning of chapter 15, there's yet another crowd forming around him. And like usual, this crowd is made up of a variety of groups. I often wonder what it had, would have been like to be one of the crowd that went out of the city 
to find Jesus and check out what he had to say? What prompted them to leave their work or family for the day? Why did they choose this way to spend a free afternoon? I also imagine that the people watching at these gatherings would have been top notch. I tried to consider a Vancouver equivalent, the fireworks, a free summer evening movie, an outdoor concert. And if you look around at any of these events, you would be able to see the many different kinds and groups of people that make up our city. Groups that are drawn together by age, by experience, language or culture, work or wealth. It's often not difficult to see what brings a group together when you start looking. I showed up at work this week to find that 10 out of the 17 people in my department were wearing a dress and a jean jacket, including myself. Uh, we tend to hang out with people that are like us. In this case, Luke tells us about the two main groups that were there. He writes, now the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Let's consider the first group, the Pharisees and the teachers of law. Or sorry, the tax collectors and sinners, the first group. It's an interesting combo. Tax collectors were agents of the occupying Roman Empire with the reputation of demanding more tax than was strictly necessary. The tax collector Zacchaeus, we read about him in Luke 19, even confessed to Jesus upon his conversion that he would make restitution to those he would cheated. This does seem to imply that their shifty reputation might be justified. And it was because of this reputation that they were shunned by their fellow Jews. When Luke mentions sinners in this context, he's focused on behavior, not their spiritual state. Craig Blomberg, in his commentary interpreting the parables, describes them as the most notorious riffraff of the society, involved in seriously immoral or evil behavior. It was these folks, the tax collectors and sinners, that were cut off from their fellow Jews as a result of their behavior, that crowded around Jesus to hear what he would say. The other group, I can imagine them standing back a little ways, keeping to themselves a bit, were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They are speaking to one another in low tones, and I can imagine a little bit of snark. He welcomes sinners and eats with them. Luke is a very precise writer, particularly in his verb choices. So when he says they muttered, I think we can all envision what that might look like. Most likely, we've all heard that muttering, or we have been that muttering. And this is one of the two places where this word is used in Luke. The other one is when Jesus goes to eat with Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Here, Luke tells us that all the people began to mutter about them dining together. So we can see that perhaps it's not only the Pharisees that sees Jesus' association with tax collectors as something to grumble about. In this passage, not only does he give tax collectors and sinners the time of day, he actually sits down and eats with them. Then, as now perhaps, sitting down to eat with someone that is scorned by your peers crosses a social boundary and can bring a little bit of judgment. So even in the first two verses, 
We haven't even got to the parables yet. Luke sets up the theme. Who is lost and how does Jesus relate to them? Who assumes they were found and how do they behave? As listeners to the story, can we imagine ourselves as any part of this crowd? Jesus, of course, knows all about the Pharisees muttering and grumbling. But instead of calling them out, he addresses their misunderstanding about the nature of God and his kingdom. He tells two story, or three stories about being lost and found. He talks about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and spoiler alert for next Sunday, one, maybe two, lost sons. We're just looking at the first two stories today, though, the lost sheep and the lost coin. But it's useful to remember that Jesus gives his listeners three ways of considering the issue. So now that we've looked at the context, let's consider the parables themselves. We'll look at the form and structure, the story, and the lesson. Let's read the parables again. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I've found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. These stories fall into the how much more form of parables. We can see this form in quite a few of the stories Jesus tells. If sinful people who are prone to messing things up can act in these ethical, loving, and joyful ways, how much more will God who is the source of all righteousness, love, and joy, show his love by seeking and demonstrate his joyful delight in finding. This means that when Jesus starts each of these parables off with a question, does he not leave the 99? He expects everyone to be nodding. Yeah. Okay, he expects the affirmative answer. Doesn't he leave the 99? Does she not light a lamp? We immediately agree that this is something that regular, responsible people would do. Why then would we expect less of God? Both of these parables have the same three-part structure. They contain three elements. The person who seeks and rejoices, the thing that is lost, and the things that are not lost. The emphasis in these parables is mostly concerned with the two humans who search so diligently and rejoice so greatly. So we'll start our discussion of the stories with them. Jesus isn't being subtle here. The searcher is meant as an obvious comparison for God. So it's interesting that Jesus chose two people 
that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law might have a little bit of difficulty relating to. Who, after all, would want to be a shepherd? Or, heaven forbid, a woman? In choosing to talk about shepherds, Jesus picked a very complex character. On the one hand, the Old Testament so often uses the metaphor of the shepherd for God. Our minds head right over to David's beautiful imagery, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Even more connected to this uh, parable is Ezekiel 34, where he says, for this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. And later in verse 16, I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. These passages would be entirely familiar to the listeners who knew the scriptures. On the other hand, however, was the fact that actual, literal, physical shepherds were on the very bottom rung of the social ladder. I learned that shepherds actually had a bad reputation. They made a bad reputation. <laughs> for... Sorry, sorry. For laziness, for lawlessness, and for dishonesty. They weren't even allowed to testify as witnesses. The fact that the second parable centers around a woman is also important. It's important because it's a brief glimpse into the attention and value that God places on women in defiance of the social values of that time and maybe even some of the values of our own time. Like the shepherd, the Pharisees wouldn't choose to imagine themselves into the life of a woman or to imagine that her life might have something important to show them. As an English teacher, among the questions that I always ask myself when I choose texts for my students to read is whose story is being told? Whose image and history are being shared? These are such important questions because what is represented, what is seen, is what is valued. In choosing a woman, and the actions of her daily life to serve as a comparison for God's actions. Jesus is also saying, as he says to women throughout the Gospels, I see you. Your life and your work are valuable and worthy of notice. So these are our searchers. Let's talk about how they search. We'll start with this shepherd and the lost sheep. The shepherd had a flock of 100 and misplaces just one. I wonder if I read this, if sheep all look the same to the shepherd, or if he knows each one of them. In John 10, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Is this true for a regular literal shepherd? Might be easy to note the black sheep in the flock, but does he recognize the sheep with only three black socks? Does he recognize the one with the splotch on its head? Is there anyone with sheep herding experience in the congregation? You can let me know later. However, as he counts them up, he realizes one is missing. What does he do? Jesus asks the question, which assumes an affirmative response. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? We don't get a lot of information about the 99 who don't get lost. I imagine we'll save that conversation for next week and the parable of the prodigal son, perhaps. But he's a responsible shepherd, so we assume that they are safe and looked after. What we do know is that he searches for her lost sheep until he finds it. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulder 
and goes home. I looked it up, and it turns out that sheep are quite heavy. Even the smallest of them weighs up to 99 pounds. It doesn't matter to the shepherd, though. He is so overjoyed at finding his lost sheep, he bears the burden of its weight all the way home. Is the effort of the shepherd reasonable? He spends all this time and energy, he leaves the others for 1% of his flock. Is that sheep worth it? Obviously it is. How much more? If a shepherd will seek out for his sheep and bear its weight home, how much more then does God seek after his own that are lost? The lost coin is even a shorter story. But it's not an exact repeat. The emphasis shifts a little. This woman has lost one of her 10 silver coins. These coins would have been the equivalent of a denarius or a day's wage. When she uh, discovers that it's missing, she searches. Jesus asks another obvious question. Doesn't she light the lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? Of course she does. It's like one-tenth of her savings. The other nine coins are safe. She doesn't have to worry about them. The emphasis here is on the diligence of her search. Jesus uses three verbs in one sentence. Light, sweep, search. She turns the house inside out until she finds what is lost. How much more? We expect the woman to search diligently for the coin that she has kept safe and put aside. How much more? then will God search for those that are precious to him. The last component that we need to consider is the rejoicing. These brief stories are filled to the brim with joyful celebration. In fact, it's the one part that isn't exactly realistic. The celebrations are seemingly out of proportion to the event. They are over the top, exaggerated. The shepherd holds a block party. He calls his friends, his neighbors together, and says, rejoice with me, I've found what is lost. The cost of his hospitality surely would have exceeded what the sheep was worth. Hospitality in this society was serious business. He needs to gather up food and drink to offer his guests. Why the need for such a big celebration? Likewise, the woman, once she has found her coin, calls all of her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. Maybe it's just me, but it seems like maybe a bad idea to call attention to the stash of coins that you are keeping safe and secret in your house. But again, how much of the value of that coin would have been spent in celebrating its recovery? The joyfully disproportionate extravagance of these celebrations should make us sit up and pay attention. What important detail is Jesus sharing with us about the nature of God's kingdom? Maybe that joy is an essential component. Jesus often lets parables, the parables he tells, stand on their own. He tells the story and allows it to percolate away in the minds of his listeners. Sometimes, however, he explains the lesson. He tells the crowd exactly what the story means. This is one of those times. He really wants each of our two groups to understand an essential truth about the kingdom. In each of the explanations, he emphasizes a different element. 
He explains the parable of the lost sheep by saying, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. This is interesting because he's making a comparison. Heaven rejoices more over, one, over a sinner that repents than over 99 righteous people. <laughs> in reading this passage over the years, I've tended to make Jesus as snarky as I can sometimes be. That means that I've put air quotes around righteous and assumed that he was being sarcastic about the Pharisees and their belief in their own righteousness before the law. Jesus, however, I think we can all agree, is not prone to belittling sarcasm. Righteousness here doesn't mean sinlessness. It means those who are right with God. Jesus doesn't, in fact, imply anything about the standing of the Pharisees. Just like he doesn't imply that the 99 sheep are blemished or that the nine coins are counterfeit. This is encouraging if you, like me, sometimes land on the side of the Pharisees, the mutterers, and the grumblers. Blomberg writes that Jesus speaks to them not by directly challenging their claim to be part of the people of God, but by seeking to woo them back more gently to a right attitude. What then is the right understanding of Jesus' lesson here? It's not that the 99 or the righteous aren't important. In fact, at some point, each one of them was restored, brought back into the fold, and the party in heaven was for them. And because they were at that time the recipient of such grace and the cause of such joy, they should have all the more reason to join in the celebration for others. Jesus is pointing out to the grumblers that if they believe that they are already recipients of the grace of God, how would they not desire that same seeking Savior to offer grace to others? They have misunderstood the nature of God's grace and how integral joy is to his kingdom. Jesus' explanation of the parable of the lost coin is more simple and more direct. He says, I tell you, there's more rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I wonder how this struck the tax collectors and the sinners. I imagine that they had no trouble finding their likeness in these parables. Could their hearts understand that they were so valued, so loved, that God would seek them out? That their repentance would cause rejoicing in heaven? How would they have responded to this outrageous love? Jesus told these parables in a specific time and in response to a specific grumble. But Luke records them in his Gospels to help us understand something absolutely essential about God and about his kingdom. God's love is so vast and so encompassing that he will go to any lengths to restore that which is lost. Jesus is in the midst of this great mission even as he shares these parables. I really love how the preacher Charles Spurgeon speaks of the, message of the mission of Jesus in light of this parable. He says, in his incarnation, 
he came after the lost sheep. In his life, he continued to seek it. In his death, he laid it upon his shoulders. In his resurrection, he bore it on its way. And in his ascension, he brought it home rejoicing. Jesus, the good shepherd, has given everything to bring us home again. Why? Because each person is infinitely precious. Each Pharisee and teacher of the law, each tax collector and sinner, you, me, and each person that we meet as we go about our day. Each is precious to God. If we believe this, it should change our perception of ourselves, of our own identity. We are beloved, valuable, and precious. This understanding is sometimes a struggle for me, and maybe it is for you. God's love is something that my mind always knows, but that my heart sometimes struggles to feel. I have asked God to show me his love again and again, and often he does. Our hearts, however, don't always change easily. And this understanding and experience of God's love and grace should lead us to sh a shift in our perception and treatment of others. God often has to remind me, through scripture, through prayer, through conversations with the family of God and my friends, that I am both a recipient and a conduit of his love. I pray for myself and for our congregation that God's love would pour into our hearts reservoirs, as Rob mentioned a couple weeks ago, so that it would overflow out to others. Lastly, while Luke wants to underscore that grace and love the key characteristics of God, he also wants us to understand that joy is the hallmark of the kingdom. Maybe you, like me, love a good episode of the Antiques Roadshow. I see some people like, yeah, and other people are like, mm, no, Shannon. <laughs> no. I particularly enjoy it when people bring out a beautiful piece of jewelry or some lovely silverware. And the appraiser gets out their loop and looks closely near the, the clasp or turns it on the bottom, the owner leans forward a little bit, waiting, is it there? And then the answer, yes, here it is, the hallmark. The official marks embedded into metal items that tells everyone it's the real deal. So when we consider joy as the hallmark of God's kingdom, that is what is meant. Joy is essential, it's how we recognize it. And as members of God's family and citizens of his kingdom, we too are called to join this joyous celebration in our hearts and in our worship. We, after all, belong to the God who seeks and rejoices. In closing, if a shepherd will search for one lost sheep and a woman will scour her house for one lost coin, how much more? will God seek out his lost beloved ones. So let us be confident in God's love for us. And may this knowledge transform how we see ourselves and how we see others in our congregation here at St. Pete's, in our families, 
and in every person around us. And finally, my friends, let us pray diligently that God will fill us individually and collectively with the extravagant joy of his kingdom. Amen.